0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to heritageradionetwork.org, a nonprofit member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show.
2: Thank you for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host today, Erin Fairbanks, and we are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And we're taking a little trip to northern Arizona today. We are on the line with Chef John Sharp of the Turquoise Room. John, thanks for joining us.
3: Uh, Thank you, Erin. It's uh, a pleasure, and I'm honored to be a part of the program.
2: So I am really excited to learn a little bit more about, um, you know, your restaurant, but also kind of the agricultural community in your region. I don't really know much about Northern Arizona. So before we kind of tuck into that, maybe you can give us just a, just a brief hint of, of your biography and how you came to be cooking in the region.
3: <laughs> okay, well, I'll try and be as brief as possible. Um, I'm uh, a traditionally trained European chef. I was born in England, um, trained as a chef in England, both uh, um, in uh, an apprenticeship program in the 60s and uh, college at the same time, moved to Switzerland when I was 19, uh, started my apprenticeship when I was 15, uh, moved to Switzerland when I was 19, worked uh, in Switzerland and some other countries. I went back to England for a short time, and then I came to America uh, in the early 70s um, as an aspiring chef, not originally intending to stay here, visit, but eventually, of course, I did, and I've been here ever since, spent uh, a number of years, uh, 16, 17 years in the greater Los Angeles area, and then... 20 years in Orange County. Uh, I uh, opened my first restaurant in Beverly Hills in 1977 and uh, my second one in Dana Point, uh, California in 1981. And uh, I went on to open uh, five more and then um, sold the group. I had a small group of four restaurants. in the Newport Beach, Laguna Beach, Santa Ana, Costa Mesa area of Orange County, Um, and then uh, I was 54 at that time in 2000, and um, my wife and I very happily decided we'd had enough of living in the megalopolis of Los Angeles, and... um, Short story is that the La Posada Hotel in Winslow, Arizona, which had been closed for 40 years, originally built by the Santa Fe Railway, designed by the very famous architect Mary Jane Coulter, uh, the hotel was considered, is considered, her pièce de resistance, her masterpiece, if you will. was the only complete hotel property, uh, the last complete hotel property ever designed for the Fred Harvey Company by the Santa Fe Railway. And um, it opened in 1930 um, and closed in 1957. Alan and Tina, who were friends of ours in Orange County, they came up here to take over the restoration of the project and ownership of the project in 1997. Um, Alan's vision had always been to have me there, and he got his wish. In uh, January of 2000, we came to Winslow, which is, um, give people an idea, Winslow, Arizona, is 60 miles or so east of Flagstaff, Arizona, um, on I-40, the highway that runs directly across the country. We're 160 miles north of Phoenix. And we are at an altitude of 5,000 feet, Flagstaff being in general between 7,000 and 7,500 feet above sea level with a mountain range that goes up to 13,000. Uh, not many people think of Arizona as having 13,000-foot mountain, but we do. And uh, we have a lot of skiing there, of course, and wonderful um, biking and so on. But uh, anyway, we came out in... Uh, January of two thousand originally, just to help Alan with the idea of maybe he could put a restaurant in this uh, very very beaten up very decrepit, very broken down shell of what was once a glorious property and um, we um, finally in um, in March of that year, we decided that 's March of two thousand we decided to take the leap of faith and uh, we sold our home in Orange County, and we moved to Winslow, and um, we built the turquoise room restaurant, which is inside of the La Posada Hotel and Resort, um, in a space that was originally the dining room space for the guests that stepped off the trains, because in those days, there were, very, there were actually no uh, food catering on the trains per se. It was still very traditional part of the Fred Harvey Company all the way going back to the 1880s when um, the train travelers got off at the certain stops and ate and then got back on the train. So we have built the Turquoise Room and the Fred Harvey Room, which are our two dining rooms inside of the former space, and uh, we opened on October 10, 2000. That's, that's how we got to Winslow.
2: So you mentioned in there that, you know, folks might not expect that Arizona or think of Arizona as a state with a, mountain range and and i have always thought of arizona you know kind of as a desert so i'm so curious like when looking at sourcing uh for your restaurant what are some of the what what is some of the produce that you find or or dry goods that you can find that are produced in your region i I mean i know that you've been super engaged with the churro sheep and and that livestock project which we're going to talk about in the second half of the show but before we get there Um, Maybe we can start a little bit on the produce end of things. And and what does the production look like in your region?
3: The production is incredibly prolific in our region. Actually, it's very – what you said is quite natural. Most people don't expect us to be rich in produce. But, um, you know, you have to separate it into two categories. First of all, the Yuma area of Arizona, the more southern part of Arizona, Is still the largest lettuce-growing area in America, uh, along with corn and and lots of other field crops. Uh, I have an organic farm, McClendon's, select Bob McClendon's farm, which is in Peoria, Phoenix, which is, granted, it is 170 miles from my restaurant, but um, it provides me with organic produce throughout the winter because... It is in Phoenix and it's uh, about five hundred feet above sea level, um, and its prime growing time is the winter time. It also grows in the summer, but he grows in the summertime also, but the, the most prolific time is in the winter. So we have this incredible array of crops coming from uh farms in the Phoenix area throughout the winter, uh all of which is Arizona grown. And then in the higher elevations, about uh, ninety miles to the southwest of me. Is an area called Chino Valley, not to be confused with the California Chino Valley of Northern San Diego County. Um, but our Chino Valley is a, is a wonderful microclimate on the wet side of the mountain range, um, at about uh, four thousand feet. And then there are growing regions going south of there, all the way through Prescott and south of Prescott, from about three to five thousand feet. And those farmers, I have an array of farms that grow for me in that region and provide me with crops from uh, mid-May all the way into sometimes uh, as late as as late October. And they are also now all of them uh, trying to branch out and uh, do some covered crops for the winter months, even though they do get freezes at that elevation. So um, we have a very, very wide selection of wonderful fruits and produce, uh, not to mention the most Critical part, which is our indigenous foods. And that was probably one of the things that started to excite me in the beginning. I had a restaurant called the Topaz Cafe at the Bowers Museum in Santa Ana in the 90s. And this was a very, very successful uh, restaurant where one of my focuses, thanks to uh, a Navajo professor called Dr. Paul Apodaca, um, thanks to his help, I started doing. Um, native inspired feasts at the restaurant over a period of seven years. And during that time, I got really involved in looking more inward to the Americas as opposed to looking outward. I was very typical of all chefs, I think, in the 80s and the 70s where, you know, we were cross breeding foods, you know, the Asian, Southwestern, and all of these hybridized. Cuisines were evolving, and I was certainly one of those. And with the help of Paul, I, I started to look more inwards. I thought, you know, the inspiration really is here in the earth of America. And what did the local people eat? How did they forage? What did they grow? What did they hunt? What did they actually cultivate? And um, I found myself doing that all the way through into into two, into uh, two thousand when I sold that group of restaurants and. Then I find myself in Winslow, surrounded by um, Indian tribes, Um, you know, the Apache tribe to the south of me, the Papago tribe to the south of me, the Navajos, the Hopis to the north, just an incredible abundance of indigenous foods and traditions that um, I was aware of, but until I arrived here, obviously, I had little or no knowledge of how it worked. From the grassroots up, although well, that's probably a wrong term, but it's more from the desert roots up. <laughs> so, thanks to a gentleman called, you may have already had, and have you ever interviewed uh, Gary Nabhan?
2: Yeah, yeah, he's been on the you network.
3: Have. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Well, you know, Gary is is an absolutely amazing man, and he and I became friends um, very early in my in my uh, time in Winslow. We met in 2002, and he immediately brought me up to speed on what was available in the area, everything from the Oda Odom tribe in the southern part of the state, to the Hopis, um, to the Navajo Nation, and uh, as we'll talk later, the Churro Lamb Project, which was one of his uh, brainchilds, not to forget the Native Seed Search, which Gary helped co-found, and, you know, the Native Seed Search helped me uh, growing crops for myself, as I did in the early days, and then uh, encouraging farmers to uh, go out and uh, use more of these native seeds as opposed to uh, other seeds that are available readily on the market. So, you know, when I got here, it was difficult. It was challenging. There wasn't a huge amount of um, of people growing. We started the farmer's market in Flagstaff uh, in 2003, and um, it is now an absolutely incredible market it will open may 26th of this year and the market sales have grown um, every single year I mean it's just amazing we have more farmers each year we have more restaurants taking part when I went there the first year I was the only restaurant buying on that market I was the only chef there every Sunday morning at eight o'clock and um, you know we now have a few chefs and from uh, Flagstaff that are taking part so we're very encouraged by that Um, and and that provides me with an incredible array of everything from uh, Hopi corn to heirloom tomatoes to okra um, you know all of the lettuce crops, uh, all of the specialty kales and chards and leeks and onions and garlic and and the most amazing array of peppers and chilies that you could ever imagine. I have one farmer in particular, uh, Corey and Shanty Rad, own a farm called Whipstone Farms in the Chino Valley in a town called, small village called Pauldon, and they have uh, worked very carefully with me as being my, one of my main providers. They uh, grow Corey plants, the most amazing array of chilies every year, Many of them are dried for me, and I use them through the winter. But when the fresh ones come up, I mean, it's, it's an absolute bonanza. And then as well, they uh, like Bob McClendon at McClendon Select, they also plant very specific varieties of squash that grow very large male blossoms um, because my number one selling appetizer, beginning next week actually, I'll get the first of the squash blossoms from McClendon. Um, in time for Mother's Day, will be on my menu as long as weather permits. So usually, nonstop, I have squash blossoms being harvested in Arizona, um, and I will sell 100 to 150 orders. That's anywhere up to six, 700 blossoms a week at the restaurant uh, all summer long. So you can imagine that's a huge amount of squash growing in the ground, just to give you an idea of how prolific our Farming network is so um, it's very exciting now, actually, very rewarding um, and and it's always changing it's always improving. We're always able to add you know more uh, products. the gillfeather rutabaga came to us a couple of years ago, which is new and exciting. The uh, Spigerella green from Italy we also started getting that about three years ago, so you know every year we get something new, something different, Nepolita mint from italy and you know all kinds of things keep coming on the markets which make it very very exciting very rewarding
2: it sounds delicious i mean you're definitely painting a a lovely and very what sounds like very edible landscape well we're just going to move to a a brief break when we come back i want to talk a little bit more about the navajo churro sheep so hang tight we will be back in just a moment
3: thank you Aaron.
1: You're listening to Chill Out by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. So, chill out, everybody. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA. Since the inception of the Heritage Turkey Project, more than 10 of Frank Reese's partner farms have converted to Good Shepherd from a corporate system whose weak protocols on husbandry, welfare, and genetics necessitated the use of subtherapeutic antibiotics at all stages of production. When Frank Reese started in 2002, he hatched 900 eggs in his barn. This year, 20,000 eggs were hatched. This is an enormous victory for sustainable agriculture and biodiversity. For more information and to order your heritage turkey today, visit HeritageFoodsUSA.com. Did you know HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a member-supported nonprofit organization? If you like what you're listening to, go to our website and click that donate button. Become a member and get special discounts, invites, VIP treatment, t-shirts, and more. Support us in our mission to bring you the freshest food content in the nation.
2: All right, we are back. We are on the line with John Sharp of the Turquoise Room, and we are going to be talking now about the uh, Navajo Sheep Project, the churro churro sheep. And, you know, I think one of the most interesting things uh, I, I learned kind of doing a little prep for the interview today was that, that these were the sheep that who, whose fibers were used for the classic Navajo blankets and, and rugs that we see so frequently and that pattern that's become quite trendy here in New York over the last year. But, John, how did you get engaged with the sheep project? project, and why has it become such an important um, project for you?
3: Okay, well, I think, first of all, the, the, the introduction of the churro lamb came from Gary Nabhan. Um, I think to, to uh, brief your listeners, it would be fair to explain that, um, first of all, this particular sheep was brought, as were all sheep, to the Americas by the Europeans. There were no sheep indigenous to the Americas. Uh, this particular breed, uh, we believe, genetically, after a lot of research, that it came from the Pyrenee region. It's a very small, scrawny, scrappy little sheep with lots of different colors in its fleece. So it's quite different from the picture that you have of the big, bushy, woolly, white merino, or the English blackface, or whiteface, or the Rochambeau. Breeds that are most common. Um, this was brought to the to uh, to Mexico actually as early as 1540. Um, it made its way up into what is now New Mexico, which used to be Mexico, of course, um, and was very well established by the early 1600s. Uh, it was then uh, readily used by the natives in. Uh, the New Mexico region to weave their blankets. These were Pueblo Indians primarily which uh, was, were all pretty much um, taken over by the Jesuits and uh, missions were built in their communities and these sheep were raised and then they went on to learn how to weave. The Navajos who were well ensconced west of that, those people they started to uh, raid that region and bring the, this particular sheep into their land, which was not a reservation then, of course. It was simply where the Navajos lived. The weaving has continued ever since then. The lamb of choice for the Navajos was always this little churro sheep, which gave off beautiful grays, bronzes, browns, blacks, almost every color you can imagine uh, earth colors um, during its breeding process and uh... it was very nearly obliterated from the region i won't get into the history of that uh... because rather distasteful story but um, it almost disappeared until uh... quite recently until the eighties nineteen eighties when uh... along with gary and and a number of other people people they started to see its its importance. So there were little pockets of this breed saved by the Navajos in very remote regions on the reservation. Now, it's also important that people understand that primarily this breed was used for weaving. It was also a major food source uh, for the tribal people and was a major part of their ceremonies in terms of its use so It it has a very um, significant role in Diné or Navajo life. It is part of the Diné tradition. It's part of their spiritual belief. It is extremely iconic to them. It's not just something to weave with and eat. I mean, it it has huge um, spiritual significance and and, uh, symbolic significance in their lifestyles. So to be able to use this as a food source is something that I take very seriously. It's very humbling, and and it's a real honor to be able to serve this lamb, as I do, 365 days a year. You know, so if we, that's a little bit of the background and the history of it, but if we, If we fast-forward to about 2003, that's when I first tasted it. Um, uh, Gary introduced me to it. And at that point, um, I started to work and speak with shepherds. I would show up at all of the meetings that they had. Uh, There are two primary organizations founded on the reservation. One is called Sheep is Life, which is basically part of the traditional heritage that I was just explaining about the Navajos. They believe that the sheep is a major source of their lives, and then the other one is the Navajo Churro Lamb Association. So I went to a lot of those meetings, started to introduce myself to shepherds with the help of Gary, and through that made some connections, uh, got a few lambs here and there, very sporadic, very um, uneven, a couple of lambs here, then three, then six, then zero, and so it went on. But uh, today um, I have two female shepherds who are, of course, weavers as well uh, that raise lambs for me, and then I have three male shepherds uh, who also raise lambs for me, uh, and they are also uh, weavers. One of them is a traditional medicine man in the uh, Shiprock area, um, Ron Ganenez and um, I have Roy Caddy, Jr., who's a very, very famous uh, weaver. And Irene Bernali and Colleen Baiakedi. These are um, some of my, uh, my uh, providers. And then I have one other provider who has another interesting history. He is a sixth generation New Mexican um, Chicano. He, his family was part of the land grant process when New Mexico, the land in New Mexico, was bought by the American government and, and brought into the states and um, his name is Antonio Manzanares, and he and his wife Molly run a lot of sheep in New Mexico, and uh, part of what they do, although a much minor part, is they run a flock of about 100, 150 churros, and I buy from them also. And and these are all, you know, come to me at different times of the year. Um, they are transported just so everyone gets an idea of how, how I handle this, uh, because I think it's an important part of, of how this has evolved. Um I only have two uh processing centers or slaughterhouses to use. One is in uh one is in uh Utah and the other is in is in uh, Colorado. I don't have a slaughterhouse in Arizona that is USDA approved so uh, or even state approved in northern Arizona so that I can have the animals processed legally and use them for, for retail sales. So um, I have two places, and uh, what happens is the shepherds uh, take the lambs themselves up to these either of these two processing plants. One is Blue Mountain Meat in Utah, and the other one is Sunnyside Meat in Durango, Colorado. So they'll drive a couple of hours or uh, three hours, drop the lambs off, and. Um, then they are processed. Uh, sometimes they will stay till the next day and buy the fleeces back from the processor. Very often they'll do that, although they usually take them, obviously. They're well shorn when they take them there. There's no, there's no wool left on the animals, basically. Um, the processor uh, hangs them for me. I have them all hung for uh, nine days, and then, um, then I have them cut up and wrapped, and we freeze them. And then I go pick them up and bring them to the restaurant. But I use the whole animal. I buy only the whole animal. And the way it works from a, um, from a business perspective is this. Um, I pay for the slaughter and the processing of the animals. And then when I get the hang weight, that is the net hanging weight of the carcass, I pay the shepherd a fee for that. I pay them an agreed-to fee per pound for the hanging weight of the lambs. So... The shepherds get, if you compare what I pay them uh, for the meat, compared to what they would get if they took it to the local uh, reservation auction, they get about twice as much per animal from me than they would at the auction.
2: Wow. Wow. Well, unfortunately, we are almost out of time. But before we wrap up, I am, I'm curious if you could maybe describe to our listeners um, who haven't had a chance to to try this particular breed. You know, Are there particular flavor uh, components that show very well in this animal race in this region, or are there kind of classic preparations, or should we be able to get our hand on some churro? Um, what would we expect, and what should we do with
3: it? Well, we'll, we'll give you two answers, so that will be as quick as I can. First of all, the good news is that there are shepherds now, uh, there are farmers' ranches on the East Coast and in California pretty much across America that are starting to breed uh churros Um so uh it is becoming more available. Um it is a hardy little breed and it's very, very lean in terms of it. it's almost like a wild animal. In fact the ones that I get, the meat has very little fat on it. If you look at it when I get the cuts I've shown a lot of different people they they're astounded. They say, How could that be can't possibly be lamb. It's gotta be like goat or it's got to be antelope or something like that because there's no fat on it. And that's just the nature of the breed it has very little fat. The fat stays around the organs. It doesn't go into the meat texture. So it is very, very flavorful to meat It doesn't have any stinky mutton flavor. In fact, one of the most amazing things about churro very briefly is that we can harvest the lambs at 18 months and it's still a lamb. It's not mutton. It doesn't have any hmm. strong flavor of lanolin and oil in it at all. It is absolutely sweet. My meat is particularly herbaceous, particularly mild, um, and non-lamb, it doesn't have that. If you put it side by side, let's say with uh, um, a um, uh, uh, a New Zealand lamb, it it is radically different. You put it side by side with a mixed breed, so-called Colorado lamb it is also night and day it, it has nothing of the same flavor characteristics mine is very reflective of the wild plants sage grasses and herbs that they feed off uh, on the reservation cuz all of mine are free range they they get very very little um hay or um baled uh grasses in the winter they pretty much are all raised in the wild
2: Excellent. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking some time out and um, painting a quite delicious uh, picture of Northern Arizona. Sounds like we need to book a trip out there soon.
3: Oh, we'd love to see you, and you can come and try some of my my food. Uh, It's very reflective of this community. I have a lot of native-inspired dishes using a lot of ingredients, a lot more than what I've just had time to mention to you today. So. uh, but if anyone wants to go online, they can go to the turquoiseroom.net and um, they can get a good look at it at my website.
2: Excellent. Folks, definitely check that out. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, as we said at the top of the show, May is our membership drive. We hope you'll consider supporting. We depend on the support of listeners like yourself. You can visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Click the donate tab, become a member, choose from an array of lovely options. I myself might go for the family membership and take home a lovely tote. In the meantime, keep tuning into the Heritage Radio Network. This, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, are available for free as a podcast via iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio or everything is archived on the site. Stay tuned. Next week, we'll have the folks of Bonnie Plants on to talk about um, getting set for your gardening needs this spring. And coming up right after the show, we've got the Grow NYC Market Update. So hang tight and keep tuned in.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. What's hot at the Green Market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update.
2: All right, thanks for tuning in. It's a, another day, another beautiful day here at Roberta's Pizza, and we are about to start the Grow NYC Market Update. This week, we are taking a trip uptown. Where are we heading?
4: Hey Erin, today we're going to trek to the Upper East Side to 82nd Street Green Market. It's located inside the St. Stephen's Hungarian Church parking lot. So this market's open on Saturday's year-round. It's a lovely gathering space for Upper East Side families, young and old. Um, The other day I described this market as a hamlet to someone. It feels like you've stepped off Park Avenue, walked a few blocks, and you're all of a sudden in a small village. The Hungarian church ladies are there sometimes with free coffee. Everyone seems to know everyone else. It's a really friendly atmosphere. Um, Aside from the great variety of green market producers that are there, the market also hosts weekly knife sharpening from a local resident, which isn't available at any other green market, and textile recycling and food scrap collection, as well as collection of non-traditional but still recyclable items like batteries and Brita filters, cords, corks, CD, DVDs, cell phones, and ink cartridges. Um, Our friends at the organization Upper Greenside set up a recycling station every week and collect those items for us.
2: Nice. Well, what, um, what about producer-wise? What kind of farmers or producers can we expect to see at the market?
4: Yeah, this market has everything you need. Hudson Valley orchard fruit and berries, South Jersey and Long Island vegetables, beef, chicken, goat meat, and eggs, cheeses, honey, Long Island seafood, and delicious pastries and breads. Come summertime, there's also a wide variety of Mexican specialty herbs and vegetables from um, Fresh Radish Farm in Orange County, New York. So the farmer, Feliciano Gonzalez, was a participant in our new farmer development project, which helps recent immigrants with a background in agriculture secure land and begin farming again. And, um, over the years, or in the last year or so, that green market project has broadened its scope to provide all of our producers with technical assistance. But the community of Central and South American immigrant farmers in the green market program still receive support from them. And those farmers continue to play a very important role in providing a diversity of products to our neighborhood markets, from many pepper and squash varieties to amazing herbs like papalo and epizote, and all of those things that we look forward to in the next couple of months.
2: Oh, man, you're making me hungry. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, well, you know what? The Upper East Side's not my neighborhood market, but if I make the trek up, you know, I want to make a day of it, so what else should I be checking out while I'm in the area?
4: Great, yeah, when you're in the market, if you head west from the market, you hit Central Park and the Guggenheim. Directly east, you hit Carl Schurz Park along the East River. Also nearby is the 92nd Street Y and the Morgan Library. Both have great ongoing programming. Um, And then when you get hungry, head to Autumn Butcher Shop right on the corner from the market um, for some coffee and prepared foods, or go to... washer's bakery for beautiful and delicious breads made with locally grown grains and jelly donuts that they fill to order with best farm kitchen jam she's a green market producer Um, they do it with a caulking gun right in front of you and it's incredible i had a sour cherry one last week i'm still daydreaming about it so this is a bakery that's been in business in the upper east side for almost a century and yet they're on the forefront of supporting local grain growers and processors and you can no question tell the difference when eating their baked goods they're delicious.
2: Oh, man, sounds like a full day and a full ballet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, other other activities, other stuff going on at other markets, what should we be keeping our calendar free for?
4: Yeah, I just heard you say it's, it's beautiful out there at Roberta's today, and I bet it is. We're in our office, but we have a big window, and I can see it's gorgeous, and spring is definitely here. So our markets are slowly opening for the season. Bartell Pritchard Market in the southwest corner of Prospect Park opened yesterday. It's a Wednesday market. Um, our St. George Market in Staten Island opens this Saturday. This week at the market, I saw a lot of asparagus and ramps, and a couple of producers even had rhubarb and fiddleheads. So the weather promises to stay gorgeous all weekend, so plenty of opportunities to load up on all those spring ingredients before they're gone. Um, then starting tonight is Food Book Fair. Of course, I know you guys are doing a lot of programming there, and we're all really excited, too. A ton of our staff are going to the panels. We even have a farmer, Keith Stewart, that's on a panel on Saturday morning. So um, foodbookfair.com is still listing the entire program, and you can buy tickets um, We're celebrating Mother's Day over the course of the next week with all kinds of gardening demos. And, um, you know, depending on if you're going to make your mom brunch or you're going to bring her flowers, uh, we'll have everything you need at your market. Um, Then in a couple of weeks we're going to be doing the Sustainable Seafood Week, which we are just participating in, really Jimmy's and the Northeast Atlantic Marine Alliance is coordinating all of those events for the city, but we'll have some chef and filet demos at market Uh, And then coming up, and Jean will talk more about this next week, but we have our Educated Eater Panel Series. We're going to do a spring panel this year. We usually have them all in the fall, so that's kind of a treat for us. Um, It's going to be at the International Culinary Center, and the topic is international cuisine with local ingredients. So um, if you go to the events page on our website, you can find out more info and how to reserve a ticket for that. But it should be a really interesting talk with a lot of chefs from New York City that um, maybe cook international dishes, but with local ingredients.
2: Awesome. That sounds like a really fun event, so definitely going to grab a ticket for that one. Well, Liz, thanks so much for taking some time out to give us an update. Um, If folks want to find out more about what's happening at the markets, they can visit www.grownyc.org. On the website, you can get info on cooking demos, book signings, giveaways, and all the general happenings at all of the markets across our fine city. Uh, if you want to stay in the know in the moment, definitely check them out by following uh, them on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, whatever your preferred social media, they are there. And stay tuned in, of course, for next week's Grow NYC Market Update.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network.